Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor David Peterson. David is Professor of Impact Studies and Science Communication at Aalborg University, Copenhagen, uh, where he's particularly active in evidence-informed policymaking and science advice to governments, as well as working on science communication more generally and on ways to evaluate the impact of humanities and social sciences. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been doing my homework, and I guess it shouldn't surprise me, given that you specialise in science communication and impact, but it seems you're not exactly an ivory tower academic. And on Twitter, you tweet using the rather mysterious handle, at humanomics map. So my first question is, what's that all about? What is humanomics? Well, humanomics is actually uh, my current research centre that I founded in 2012, uh, which is basically our hub for doing research. We are a staff of five to six persons, depending on, on our funding situation. And we turned that into um, a new name, the humanomics. We are doing the omics, the mapping of the DNA of the human sciences and social sciences. So we came up with the word humanomics. I see. So it's your coinage. And so you're working on understanding specifically the impact of research in the, well, you said the human sciences. Is that the same as I mean when I see humanities? Right. Okay. It is. Humanities yes. and social sciences. Okay. So just to lay the groundwork, what do you actually mean by impact? So what we saw uh, almost a decade ago uh, coming into this new area of impact studies was basically a, a situation in which uh, the humanities and social sciences were being subjected to the same uh, impact indicators and impact measurements as was then um, dominant in the natural and technical sciences. So we were also being measured by the number of patents or startup companies or royalties or the number of direct external collaborations that we would engage with in, in terms of, um, of industrial collaboration. Uh, there were really no indicators available to map out or visualize or document the specific impact that the social sciences and humanities had on society, civil society, public policymaking, uh, even democracy, citizenship. So we took as a task to formulate a new research program together with the private research uh, foundation, uh, which would then come up with a number of new indicators and ways in which we could track the, the impact or the, the influence, or you could even say the, the value uh, of humanities and social sciences in society, sort of as a supplement uh, to the established econometric and bibliometric indicators. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Are we talking about numbers, quantitative measures? Yeah, so our approach has basically been a mixed method approach. We have both been very curious in coming up with better, better quality data. So we have been doing quite a, a large number of quantitative studies, also harvesting and collecting new data and analyzing that by establishing, for example, a new uh, software tool with which we could track the outcome, the outputs and the activities of researchers within SSH. Um, but obviously numbers do not tell the full story. So in order to unpackage those data, we were also building and are continuously building uh, case studies, impact case studies, impact narratives, so that we can connect, uh, as it were, both the numbers and the narratives in a way that makes a more strong argument for the position and the, um, let's say, the value or the, the influence of these disciplines in our contemporary societies. And you say it's not just the same as measuring citations or research collaborations or uh, business collaborations? No, I mean, uh, of course, what we, what we would label outputs are not the same as, as, uh, as impacts. But there are a lot of different outputs from science. This is something we often overlook when we are trying to evaluate scientific activity. We believe that journal articles... Uh, book chapters, conference proceedings, or lectures are almost kind of the only outputs. But the moment we started doing more systematic research on the research outputs, we thought that there was a whole variety of different outputs stemming from uh, research that might be uh, public opinion pieces, media outreach, doing a podcast like this one, Toby. It might also be to give testimony to expert committees, to be on a hearing for parliamentary decision-making process, it could also be, you know, to come up with new data sets that you would circulate in an open format, co-design exhibitions in cultural institutions or guide the management process in a private company. 
So what we saw investigating all these new types of outputs was basically that there is a much more to be said about the impact pathways of, I guess, actually all the sciences um, to what society, but in particular the humanities and social sciences, for whom classical you know, journal publication outputs and patents were actually not the primary uh, pathways to impacts, but was kind of secondary. Um, they were much more interested in, in engaging with society, building collaborations with cultural institutions, health institutions, um, educational institutions, but also, as we discovered uh, throughout the research process, also to a large extent, uh, building interactions with uh, policymaking. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And thank you for, for throwing me that segue opportunity. But I'm going to turn it down just for now because um, I want to explore a bit more about this more general research impact stuff. Uh, we'll get into policy advice imminently. But I'm curious, have these new metrics for measuring impact actually been taken on board by funding authorities? So by the people whose business it is to assess impact? Yeah, so we were, we were in a very fortunate situation from the beginning that we actually convinced a funding agency itself to take on board this project. So we had a very good sandbox for developing ideas of how to then implement some of these results in practice. So that also goes back to, to your initial mentioning of me not being really an ivory tower uh, researcher, <laughs> but also being oriented towards improving practice. And we saw really that we could improve the way that grant uh, agencies were evaluating their funding applications. We could also uh, very easy, very quickly see that uh, some universities were interested in understanding how they could evaluate and also reward uh, research practices that would not fall within the ordinary parameters of scientific outputs, namely, again, publications or patents. So yes, we did uh, manage to convince um, a couple of funding agencies to try to map out what we call their impact profile. So we did a number of participatory workshops together with uh, researchers active in their fields to try to understand their specific impact profile and then conveying that messages also to the evaluation panels and to the board of directors in these funding agencies. And I guess... I mean, we are still early days in this broader impact agenda, but I'm, I can say with some confidence that there was really a huge interest. I think a lot of funding agencies, but also a lot of research evaluators, they are quite aware that they are measuring research outcomes on a very narrow basis. And they are all curious in getting a more nuanced picture. Uh, we are living in highly complex societies in which research and technology, you know, Toby, plays a huge role in almost all areas of decision-making, all areas of societal action. So why don't we direct our impact indicators in a way that is also able to look upon that value creation rather than limiting ourselves to only economic value creation or, let's say, publications in very narrow uh, journals um, in the scientific literature. So even though we didn't come up with, let's say, a new golden standard, which I also believe is quite impossible because a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these um, uh, processes are very contextual and they are very sensitive towards the exact context you're working in and you're trying to make a mark on, 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 on a, a specific area of policymaking or, or any other institution. It's very difficult to come up with universal indicators, which is also not what we are trying but within those sectors, within those disciplines, uh, within those contexts, we saw a huge curiosity to go ahead and experiment with new impact measurements and new impact tools. Yeah. I was working in academia in the UK when the uh, so-called impact agenda really arrived right. there in terms of like funding criteria and academic progression. And it's fair to say it was met with a fair amount of, well, I was going to say resistance, but I think maybe in some cases the right word is, is just hostility. Right. But this was maybe 10, well, more like 15 years ago. Ugh. But how are things now? Has this kind of broadening of the meaning of impact that you're describing, has it made the whole agenda any more palatable? Especially since it sounds like your improvements have come bottom up from the academic side. Yes, I, 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 think, I think it is making it a bit more legitimate in the sense that we as researchers can see that our research is sort of being misrepresented by a lot of the more simplistic indicators that have been on the market. So rather than accepting to be subjected to that narrow mindset, that narrow array of indicators or parameters, 
the research community in this in this space has really developed a whole new set of tool sets, a, a whole new set of, of tools uh, that are able to visualize and document and evidence a much broader impact. And that has sort of led to a situation in which we have a much more diverse and nuanced understanding of the ways in which we are interacting with society, in which we are creating impacts and sometimes not even impacts, but just creating new relationships, new interactions. And that has, I guess, that has provided a more nuanced picture of the entire research process uh, that was not available beforehand. Still, I would say we are still having some challenges with the fact that some policy uh, makers obviously are interested in getting, uh, you know, a more comparable data. So what that means is that all research units across a specific uh, scientific field or even across all fields of scientific inquiry are then subjected to the same indicators because then you get, you know, well-ordered numbers with which you can compare and you can make an evaluation and you can redistribute funding. So this was not the direction really we wanted to uh, head to. We wanted to uh, supply the researchers themselves, the research groups, the institutes, departments, the faculties, and also the funding agencies with a more contextually driven set of indicators so they could sort of find out where are we located in civil society how is our research being perceived? Is it being taken up? Is it being used? Is it being implemented? Who are the knowledge brokers uh, operative or active in our field? So who are the intermediaries that we're uh, communicating our research to? And who are they, they going ahead communicating our research to afterwards? So we wanted to take more kind of an ecosystem approach. And um, this has sometimes been labeled responsible impact or responsible research assessment, which is much more about paying very close attention to the exact context in which you want to make a difference. That's very logical and sounds very enlightened, but but does it come at the cost of comparability, as you say? Because one of the things that governments and funding authorities surely need to be able to do is to compare different research endeavors and their impact so they can decide where to well put their money, for instance. If we lose that, don't we lose the point or part of it? It's, it's kind of a double-faced uh, figure here because you see that on the one hand, you're totally right, Toby, that policymakers often do like to have comparable universal standards so that there is a winner and there is a loser and there's somebody who can be rewarded and someone who can be sanctioned for not doing that job uh, good enough. So this used to be the kind of government mentality in the 80s and in the 90s in almost all Western societies. What we see today is, um, I wouldn't say the opposite, but there is a new curiosity in understanding value creation as something more broadly. And so what I normally advise funding agencies to do is to not deprive themselves from nice success stories. So if you were to only apply a very narrow set of indicators, you will also only get a very narrow set of results. Uh, on the other hand, if you were to apply a broader set of indicators, you would get a broader set of of uh, success stories. And that's something that's quite attractive for funding agencies to say, okay, this might not be comparable across the board, so there won't really be a winner and a loser. But what we can see by using some of these new tools is that we are having a massive influence on policymaking, on civil discourse, on business development and new business models, um, on interdisciplinary collaborations where we would perhaps only, you know, 10 years ago, we would primarily look at co-authorships as an indicator of interdisciplinary collaboration. That is how many authors from how many disciplines would be on board in a research paper, which is an extremely narrow measure of interdisciplinarity. Today, we are looking at, you know, consortia, we are looking at partnerships, alliances, networks, joint appointments, joint projects some of which you know, may end up also in uh, co-authored publications, but a lot of which are not uh, translated into publications, but a lot of other knowledge outputs. So you get a more complete picture, but what you obviously lose is then uh, the comparability. So this has a lot to do with leadership and the courage by funding agencies to stand up to the mission statement and say, this is the type of value we want to create in society. This is our theory of change. And then on top of that, develop some more context-sensitive indicators with which you can document your contribution to that sort of change rather than attributing final effects to specific pieces of research. Right. I think I'm almost ready to zoom in on 
the one specific area of impact that we're here to talk about, which is the impact of science interacting with policymaking. But before we do, there's one little niggle I want to raise first, if I may. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, so you group together humanities and social sciences, or you say human sciences and social sciences, but aren't they very different things? So, I mean, I mean like social sciences, science, it aims to uh, improve our knowledge of the world. Humanities, I don't want to wade into controversial territory by trying to gloss the purpose of humanities, especially not when I'm talking to an expert on that. But still, I mean, in point is they're very different fish, aren't they? What's the logic in combining the two together? Well, I mean, first of all, this is quite controversial in the sense that when you look at the philosophy of science and the history of science, you're completely right. These were quite different disciplines. They have quite different uh, ways of working and uh, ways of organizing themselves. But I guess that um, what happened in the last 10 to 15 years, especially uh, you know, in order to get policymakers to include the social sciences and humanities more in new funding programs, especially funding programs under the European Union that were to drive interdisciplinary collaborations. These disciplines were sort of grouped together, I guess, out of simplicity, really. So that is controversial because when you put disciplines that are so different together, you might risk losing kind of the, the nuance. You might risk losing the greater picture. Um, by understanding that what happens in, let's say, history of art is, is not the same as happens in econometrics um, and that you're not able really to fund or stimulate uh, excellent research by the same tools in those two different traditions. At the other hand, it also made the humanities and social sciences more visible. It gave them sort of a common voice and a common interest. So now we had a new concept with which we could then go and argue for more inclusion more integration in interdisciplinary research and also higher degrees of funding. So I think it was a trade-off and it still is. I can tell you that actually right now in Aalborg University, where I'm from this year, 2021, we are now merging the Faculty of Humanities with the Faculty of Social Sciences into a new SSH faculty. So we can see how these um, traditional disciplinary uh, boundaries are being broken down and how new interdisciplinary collaborations are then being stimulated and allowed. Right, interesting. Do you also include the arts in your new faculty? We do not, actually. The arts are uh, in Denmark uh, based in art schools and design schools, which is outside the uh, formal universities. They belong to their own sort of structure within our um, higher education uh, ecosystem. And they actually also um, uh, belong to the Ministry of Culture, interestingly enough, whereas the universities obviously are within the remit of Ministry of Higher Education and Science. Okay. Well, so let's talk about understanding and measuring the impact of science on, on public policy, politics, lawmaking. Tell me a little bit about your thinking here. Sure. So when we started um, doing more systematic research on these different types of output from social sciences and humanities, one of the major sectors that came up as one of our primary collaborators and one of the types of institutions that uh, SSH researchers would often communicate their research to or interact with was actually policymaking. So especially in terms of um, the disciplinary relationships, let's say to uh, education. So what we found in our data was that actually quite a lot of uh, researchers being active within educational research, uh, broadly conceived, were also active actually as science advisors and knowledge brokers for educational policymaking. So, for example, we started looking upon expert committees, working groups, task forces that were nominated by the Danish government in areas of educational policy. And here we could see that some of the researchers we have been doing research on in terms of their science communication were very active also as expert members of these committees. And the same was true for other um, uh, disciplines. If you look, for example, upon law, uh, the Faculty of Law uh, has a long-established tradition of providing regulatory input 
uh, to lawmaking in Denmark. So you have within the Ministry of Justice and also within other jurisdictions, you have regulatory committees that are committees who are testing and formulating new policies. Here again, we would see quite a large number of academic experts being invited to provide input, provide expertise and provide quality assurance and to see how these new regulatory frameworks would fit obviously with international law, international regulation and also uh, sentences among the Danish court system. We even find humanistic uh, scholars who were active in, uh, in the secret service, you know, who were providing uh, classified information about how to engage foreign governments, uh, how to collect intelligence in conflict areas. So this is, again, you know, societal impact of research. Now, uh, in this concrete situation, impact on policymaking, or perhaps not then policymaking, but then policy capacity uh, that we're not figuring uh, at all among established indicators, almost to the level where it couldn't because it was under confidentiality. <laughs> yeah. But So kind of invisible impacts. But what we then also saw was that a lot of this data is in fact available, that there is actually a lot of openness around uh, expert committees, individual advisors, uh, government commissions, hearings, workshops, uh, seminars, joint conferences. So we kind of discovered this whole ecosystem of interactions between social sciences, humanities and policymaking. Uh, especially, as I said before, in terms of education, social policy, and also, which might be a bit surprising, also in terms of health policy. It turned out in our data that actually health policy is one of the areas that are capitalizing quite heavily on, on social sciences, but also on humanities scholarship in terms of patient care, in terms of engaging patients and their families, in terms of directing new uh, health communication that is reaching different audiences that you normally do not reach as a health authority. Uh, I myself have been advising the Danish health authority in, in, um, in, a, in a campaign against uh, disinformation, where they wanted to convene a group of experts to advise them on how to uh, established more um, legitimate and trustworthy sources of government communication to citizens, um, a process in which uh, it quickly became an issue how to confront uh, mis- and disinformation. So here you could see really social sciences and humanities now in this particular case, even science communication itself being quite a crucial resource for health policymaking and then the outcomes of health investments and health policies overall in Denmark. So yes, we did actually find quite a rich uh, ecosystem of interactions, of uh, common projects, of, um, of, uh, of co-creation, as we now call it, where policymakers would work together with uh, scholars uh, in order to come up with new solutions, scenarios, um, different courses of action, or in most cases, different uh, recommendations for actions. So I find that fascinating. So you're describing a very vibrant and lively ecosystem, as you said, and, and perhaps also a quite a high quality and effective one, but it's also pretty disjointed. So I guess my question is, does it matter? Like, so what if there's not an overarching connecting infrastructure or common understanding of principles? Um, so what if there's no spider at the center of the web? Why don't we say this all works as intended, whether by luck or judgment, so let's leave it alone? Well, I think that's actually a very crucial question, and I'm not sure, Toby, I have the final answer for that. Uh, only recently, we published a new report in my research group to the Danish government on mapping the ecosystem of science for policy in, in Denmark, and the report is now, is now openly available. And uh, the report really documents that there is a really rich and quite diverse ecosystems. There are many different mechanisms uh, through which we can interact with and communicate evidence, data, and, and expertise to policymakers. But what is also very characterizing for the Danish system is that there is no kind of general framework. We, for example, do not have a chief scientific advisor to the government. We also do not have a scientific advisory mechanism like the one uh, at the European Commission. We also actually do not have very strong academic uh, societies or national academies that are active in science advice. 
So we have all these other uh, more informal, you could even say ad hoc mechanisms of science advice. So it's kind of a paradoxical picture that we are drawing up in that report, saying on the one hand, yes, there is actually an extremely rich resource of science advice being available to policymakers in in Denmark. Uh, At the same time, there is no uh, inventory. There is no oversight. So uh, what happens in one corner, um, say, of the ecosystem is not always reflected in a different corner. So one hand does not always know what the other hand is doing. What that also means is that there is kind of a lack of of peer learning among communities. So what works well in one area of science advice in Denmark are not always being harvested or translated to be working better in another area. We believe, at least as, as, as researchers in this area, that it would be quite beneficial for these people to talk more with each other. That is not said, you know, Toby, on any observation that things are going bad in Denmark or that things are, you know, not working. It actually seems from our studies that they are working quite well. But what we're, what we're trying to highlight is that there is still some space for improvement. So just to give you like one sort of, uh, you know, recent example is, is the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, which is not confined to a single sector, right? It's a, it's a cross-sectorial um, crisis in its own right. It's an emergency crisis. It, it has implications across government. So here the sectorially uh, silo-based system, no matter how well that works in the everyday life of, of science advice or, or knowledge for policymakers, is insufficient. You need to then reorganize your scientific advisory Uh, comedies at a cross-sectorial basis so that you're able to get a more complete and multi-dimensional picture of the crisis or the emergency that you have in front of you. And here what we could see, at least in the first wave of the pandemic in Denmark, that this was really difficult. This was really challenging to the government to say, here we can not only rely on the on the well-established sectorial principles of science advice, here we need something more interdisciplinary but also um, cross-sectoral all right well having said you might not be able to answer that question you pointed i think to two quite persuasive answers about why we might want to make things more joined up structurally um one about learning each other's lessons and the other about the need to bring it all together to tackle these urgent issues which are multi-dimensional so i guess then by drawing the map the, the point of drawing the map is to assess what exists And then having drawn it, you can look and say, okay, what exists is plenty and it's working pretty well. But then you also have the map you've drawn as a tool in itself. So you can start drawing lines saying, maybe we can connect this to this and there's overlap here or redundancy or a gap. Um, You mentioned COVID-19 as an example of why we need it. Do you feel like COVID has also given some new momentum to this process of joining things up? Yes, I I think that it's um, fair to say that COVID-19 was really a triggering moment also in Denmark and in in the Scandinavian countries. I I guess even globally, um, also drawing on the work of INSA and the European Commission and also especially the UK government in this space was really a triggering moment to go back and see, um, is there something we should revise This is a good moment in time to try to understand, as I said before, to map out, understand uh, your own scientific advisory um, system. Your the, the culture of science advice really was put to a test. Uh, so now that we we put the system to a test and we responded quite differently, some with more success than others. But I think again, it's fair to say that all systems, all all national systems of science advice, were put under pressure uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, so now is a kind of a golden moment to to revise or evaluate: Are we doing Are we doing the job good enough? Can government learn something from this experience? And also, can the providers of science advice? On the supply side, can we learn something? Are we doing the job good enough? Are we being available as academic units and as universities and scholars? Are we being available to government? And when we are asked to provide input, do we then have the sufficient capabilities? Are we equipped to provide input to cross disciplinary emergencies? And here I think that the answers are much more up in the air and 
you know, I can say that yes, at least you know, Scandinavian countries and Denmark as my own as my own home country is a quite well-run, efficient society with a lot of social cohesion, and we normally pride ourselves of being quite trust-based and and efficient. But when a when a tsunami of of uh, different you know challenges roll over the country like a pandemic, it also puts uh, a lot of pressure on the public administration and on the science system. And here we could also see some cracks. Here we could see that the system was starting to crack up, and that this was a good moment in time to then for the government and its own advisory committee. Um, the Danish Council for Research and Innovation Policy to commission this report that we now only finalized to get this glimpse into the ecosystem. And I think, yes, we actually, we do not uh, make a list of, uh, of possible improvements, but we do point out that there is a need uh, to learn more from each other, to have better oversight, and also to have available some best practices So that next time there will be a crisis or moving out of the current one into into the next big challenge for all contemporary societies, namely the green transition and fighting climate change. What can we then learn from some of the experiences being built up uh, throughout COVID-19? I'm glad you brought up the distinction between the supply side of science advice and the demand side. My impression from the outside is that when people talk about capacity building in science advice, they're usually talking about either improving capacity on the supply side, I guess making us better equipped to give advice or improving the quality or whatever, or they're talking about working at the interface between science and policy. But in what you've just said, there were some suggestions about capacity building also on the demand side, which I guess is like improving the ability of policymakers to receive the advice and use it. Let's talk a bit more about that side of things. Yeah, yeah. this is really kind of at the heart of what we are trying to achieve, but it's also one of the really hard problems uh, of science advice is really to get access to the policy makers and to um, understand how they work. You know, you in order to really um, cultivate the, the demand side, you need to understand uh, how the policy cycle is working. You need to understand the, the influence of values, Uh, the time frame of decision making, uh, the need to compromise, you know, the need to uh, constantly make thresholds for what type of uh, uncertainties you can accept and what type of uncertainties you will not accept to act upon. And this all belongs to the policy side of things. And it's often, you know, muddy and complicated. And often it is also something that takes place behind closed doors. You know, it's not as a researcher at a public university, I can't just go and knock on the door and ask the public service in Denmark to, to do, uh, you know, participant observation or to become, you know, to actually record um, government negotiations. So it's much harder to get access and therefore it's also a bit harder to learn uh, in a research-based and systematic way from these processes and, and these interactions. But... Then uh, I actually started out my own career now uh, 15 years ago as a civil servant. I started out uh, very young, only 22 years old, as a civil servant in the Danish Ministry of Higher Education and Science. And I worked there for seven years as a policy advisor. And um, that gave me a lot of respect and a lot of understanding for how the po world of politics works. And this, you know, you really need to include that if you want to build capacity also for science advice within government, because you need to respect and also pay attention to the way policymaking in itself is working. The moment you do that, you may, might be able then to gain the trust of the policymaker and to get them to accept that, yes, perhaps they do not know the entire answer already. Or yes, perhaps they cannot only rely on internal science services. But this is really a matter of building trust and also building, um, you know, trustworthiness and confidentiality with the, with the policymakers. But I think it is going to be crucial for capacity building within science advice for the next years, at least judging from the situation in Denmark, to build more capacity and understanding of what science can do and cannot do in the policy ecosystem. Because you are quite right. Um, not only because of access, but also because of, let's say, the impact interest of, of, of researchers. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's more, 
you know, feasible to get a group of researchers together, let's say 15 or 20 researchers in a room, and then over two days uh, educate them in having policy impact in, you know, uh, creating new tools for communicating their research to policymakers, they would often be interested in that per se because it would promote the impact of their research, my initial research focus. But then what happens the moment they have uh, communicated uh, their research? How is that being perceived? How is it being translated? How is it being synthesized? And finally, but not least, how is it being implemented uh, and integrated into policymaking? I think all these quite complex questions needs to be kind of posed, but also answered uh, within the same way of, of, uh, of thinking or doing research. So this is basically the bridge we are trying to build. And uh, I would say this is very much a, sh a ship that we are building while sailing. Yeah. One thing that struck me from a, a conversation a while ago, talking to people involved in science advice in a national parliament, the, du the Dutch parliament, including a Dutch MP, they said actually quite a few of the things you've just mentioned. And they also mentioned the importance of champions, of people within the political system, MPs or ministers or whoever, who were willing to fly the flag for scientific input and persuade their colleagues of its importance. Uh, that's just a comment, really. <laughs> Well, I think it's an interesting comment and, and um, you know, I think it's even more interesting to hear this comment from members of parliament rather than from a research professor like myself, because I actually don't believe that I should have any strong opinion about the literacy of our members of parliament. We, we have the politicians we deserve. We are living in a democracy in which we are electing our politicians to, to run for government and to take over, you know, shared responsibility for our societies. And then we got to work with what we have. You know, we got to respect the voice of the people. And sometimes what we see is that we do get champions of research into parliament. In Denmark, we have a couple of examples. We don't have many PhD degrees among members of parliaments in Denmark. And I don't even think we should have. We should have, you know... Uh, parliamentarians who are reflecting the broader civil society within we live but champions do make a difference so if you only have let's say four or five uh, persons among the elected that you can then go and have conversations with who can perhaps open up a meeting or have a you know parliamentary hearing then you might be able to uh, promote more scientific uh, content uh, and more scientific advice to parliament which is really a crucial issue also for reasons of democracy, uh, because often, um, you know, parliaments are as an important platform for scientific advice as are governments uh, in terms of smaller parties, especially in terms of smaller parties that might not have the same muscle uh, to synthesize and include new research or do their own calculations or scenario planning they might rely more heavily on access to external science advice or parliamentary science advice than, than do government. So also for those reasons, I believe that champions are important, but I would rather not have a strong opinion about who and why and how, but I would rather then as a public servant myself, as a, as a public uh, university professor, I would then rather try to say, okay, here is the elected uh, uh, parliamentarians, how can we assist and facilitate uh, the uptake and, and usability of science uh, as much as possible, given the fact that there is demand? And uh, that, I think, is as important as the champions. And we can also do more on the, on the supply side to cultivate that demand also being active within research on science communication. I think a lot of colleagues could do more to communicate their research in a more tangible way to policymakers. Hmm. Yeah. Well, now, next, I'd like to ask you a bit about the question of independence. So as you improve the flow of demand and supply, um, you increase ownership by policymakers of the advice process, and maybe you also improve impact. But don't you risk losing one thing that we really want from science, which is to stand apart from politics? So governments already have a lot of influence over science by where they choose to invest their funding and how they regulate and so on. And now we're also talking about politicians interacting closely with science advisors and getting to know them and really helping to shape the kind of advice they receive. 
Do you think there's a risk here of losing the independent element that we value? Well, well, there is definitely a risk about uh, losing uh, independence, uh, but I think it's a risk that can be mitigated. And I think we have some quite strong principles in place that, that with which we can regulate the scientific advisory process and, and with which we should also organize these processes and, and these mechanisms and instruments in a way that is um, uh, really respecting the independence and, and making sure that we are not uh, compromising the integrity of the advisors. Uh, it will often uh, be the case that you can find one or two examples of that and there will be policymakers who will try and there will be scientists who might be you know, uh, subjected to some type of bias or, or even censorship or, or even uh, interference in their research. But across the board, I think that we have strong principles in place that can make sure that we are not compromising uh, on the ethics. Um, a good colleague of mine, Mark Sainer from Canada, wrote a paper a couple of years back uh, in which he really formulates kind of a paradox of scientific advice, what he called the, the, the balance between proximity and distance. So on the one hand, uh, you might favor a situation in which there is a lot of distance between policymakers and scientists because that will, uh, you know, create independence and arm's length um, and that will make it very clear to external observers what is the responsibility of the researcher and what is the responsibility of the, of the policymaker. But that often uh, leads to a situation in which the dialogue collapses and which there will be no co-creation and no common solutions taking place because people then will be preoccupied by securing, uh, as it were, their own uh, integrity. So that brings then uh, to the fore the question of proximity. So how can you engage in proximity with policymakers while still preserving your integrity? That's kind of the core issue here. And I think it's, again, it goes back to, um, you know, mutual trust, to having a shared uh, uh, problem space. And it also goes back to the question of understanding really div the division of labor. Um, it's, it's a misunderstanding to believe that scientists should be uh, making or taking decisions. They should be shaping decisions and shaping, you know, the content and the inspiration and the evidence uh, for decision making. But they should not be taken uh, to really uh, provide the final answer or the final solution. So I think it's important to say we can accept that there is an independence of researchers to provide the best available input. And then when we have collected the input as policymakers, we also need to take a step back and then make up our minds and take the decision. Because in the end of the day, the decisions will be the responsibility uh, of the decision maker and not of the scientists. And that makes it more open for, for division of labor. Perhaps I'm painting kind of a rosary red picture here because I know that, uh, you know, uh, in the everyday life and in, the, in all the interactions between policymakers and scientists, it's not always running smoothly. Sometimes there may be very high stakes. Sometimes there may be very limited time frames. And there might also be some researchers who can feel a bit compromised. But this has then to be bootstrapped and secured by really reinforcing principles of ethics and also it goes back to a point that we raised a little moment ago. It goes back to also building the capacity. So if you have good competences and good skills for both the supply side, but also for the demand side, so that you're also building scientific advice literacy among the policymakers, then policymakers will also start to understand that really scientific advisors are not dangerous. They don't need to be compromised. They don't need to be silenced we can actually source in the information, source in the advice, and then take a step back and make the decision. That will be a much more democratically legitimate way of, of conducting scientific advice, at least, let's say, as an abstract ideal. Okay, but then I wonder how much of what you just described is something you want to implement structurally or, or protect structurally, like institutionally. I mean... A common reply to this worry about independence is, uh, yeah, of course, it's a risk and scientists have got to be able to keep their independence, even though we now value 
co-creation. But I get a bit nervous about putting all the weight of that on the shoulders of the individual scientists and the individual politicians to understand their roles and respect the line between them. So I guess I'm asking, do you think that we can mitigate the risk only in the ways you've described so far, training and understanding and collaboration and so on? Or do you think there's also a need to build more institutional uh, structures to enforce separation? Yes, that's. Um, I think that we need to strike some type of balance between between those scenarios. I, I think that on the one hand, yes, obviously, as I said, uh, capacity building, skill sets training, and also uh, building some platforms uh, and some meeting places where dialogue can emerge and where co-creation can take place is crucial. But on top of that, I also think you're hinting at something important here, Toby. That you know that it might also be. Uh, worth considering to have a more permanent mechanism. It, at least in the Scandinavian countries, this can this will probably never be really in the in the role of the chief scientific advisor to government. But it might be some type of more stable mechanism, an oversight committee within parliament or government that really would be tasked with the responsibility to collect scientific advice, to organize it, and also to mandate it. So just just to, let's say, to, to concentrate some capacity or to concentrate some experiences in, 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 one, in one government agency or, or to have like a sustained, um, you know, place where that could take place would be, in my eyes, uh, preferable. Um, it, and I think, again, this would also make, make sense in terms of, of advising the advisors. That's a different topic that we are also working on to say, where are the advisors getting sound advice on becoming advisors? Um, both, again, I would say on, this, on the supply side, of course, but also on the demand side. So how do you get advice on, on uh, procuring good scientific advice? And here I would, I would see a need for perhaps, a, um, a, yeah, like a new forum or a new mechanism or a new alliance of science advice or, or knowledge mobilization in Denmark and also in other European countries. Um, it could be in the form of a, of a scientific advisory mechanism, like a scientific council. It could also take other forms. What I believe is important is that you, um, yeah, you harness the, the, the benefit of experience and you get some people into the room that really needs to talk to each other, but who can also guide um, the establishment and, and, and facilitate uh, novel processes. So the moment you are uh, witnessing a new crisis, say, or a new emergency, you have kind of an entry point where you can go and seek advice um, for the government to set up new committees, for, to seek advice on how to nurture the interdisciplinarity and the multidimensional nature of science advice, how to seek advice on also securing fundamental principles of independence, of openness, of transparency. So if there would be, um, yeah, it's not going to be a, a one road uh, to science advice. We don't, I, I cannot foresee in the near future that we would have an oversight committee who would be uh, tasked with the responsibility to organize all scientific advisory processes because the ecosystem is way too rich and I would even say way too well-functioning in, in all its <laughs> details already. But to have a, a collected forum um, or, uh, or council or uh, alliance uh, where uh, those uh, competences could be collected and perhaps where they could also be supported by a secretariat or a research entity who could then provide this type of advice on the advice process, uh, I would believe having mapped the Danish ecosystem would really be an added value. All right. Well, thank you for being willing to, to freewheel a bit there and speculate. It's really interesting. So that's the institutional angle, but I'm sure you recognize also as a fellow communicator that there's the public perception side to worry about. So we might be convinced that scientists and policymakers all know the boundaries and respect each other's roles and so on. And, and so what they're doing, they can do in a kind of safe way, so to speak. But the public will care about these things too, especially when it comes to science advice on sensitive issues. So if we have a closely intertwined model, what evidence can we still show to outside observers, maybe even suspicious or hostile observers, to prove that the science is still really independent and the advice is not being unduly influenced? 
Yeah, so it's it's important in all of these settings to be very strict on on the rules of engagement and on the on the terms of reference. There needs to be uh, clearly uh, formulated uh, principles, clearly formulated roles. So it's important, for example, what we did in Denmark during the COVID-19 pandemic, we had an intergovernment uh, expert reference group, and they were then uh, in the terms of reference, uh, not only allowed, but also encouraged to communicate their advice more broadly. So if they were asked by journalists or uh, members of the public uh, to argue or to convey their messages, they would they would do so. It wouldn't be strictly under confidentiality. It wouldn't be only an elite club. So here, openness, uh, transparency, and also public outreach. I mean, the public communication of scientific advice is extremely pertinent and important. Because uh, many researchers would think that scientific advice already in itself is a form of science communication, which it is. But I don't think that the job is done with only communicating uh, scientific input to policymakers. The same input also have to be unpackaged, explained and also challenged uh, in a broader dialogue. Uh, so I believe, and I'm also uh, trying to practice that myself, I, I really believe in the culture of open science, in the culture of open data, and trying to be as available also to journalists and to news and to even members of the public as possible. Obviously, you know, we only have 24 hours a day and a five, six, seven week of work. Uh, preferably five actually and and so there is of course limitations to your availability but i think it belongs to the ethos of science good scientific advice also to be available uh, to the public and then make sure that you disclose your interest that there is no conflicts of interest and make sure that you also before you engage in a scientific advisory process read the terms of reference you know make your voice heard if this is somewhat not aligned with your values, if what you're being asked to provide is too narrow to political um, interests or to, or to um, protecting specific ideological uh, positions, then say no. You know, retract from that process or put out a minority statement, a minority conclusion in, in the final conclusions because in the end of the day, you're completely right Without the public trust and without the public oversight and the transparency of these processes, very easy, easily uh, you will see researchers, scientists and, and policymakers being bundled together as this undefinable elite that is making decisions behind closed curtains uh, which are not perceived as being in the interest of the public. So here, radical openness, radical integrity and also using some of the well-established principles uh, of responsibility, division of labor and transparency, I believe uh, can facilitate the building of trust. But in the end of the day, this is in the hands of real people made out of flesh and blood. And it is about how to conduct these systems wisely on the ground when emergencies hit, or as you said before, when you are confronted with, con with uh, controversies, then you have to be able to respond. And you have to be able to respond in an open and in a humble manner. All right, well said. And then the other public angle is, uh, so we've been talking about co-creation between policymakers and scientists, but you also hear co-creation used more broadly to talk about involving other actors, citizens, civil society, and so on. Is this an area where you're also interested in building capacity for science advice? Sure, it is. So we were just lucky to secure funding for a new project that will run for the next 10 years in Denmark on algorithms, data and democracy. So this is about trying to promote more scientific advice in the intersection between humanities and computer science. So design thinking, ethics, anthropology, but also engineering, algorithmic design, and the usability of uh, algorithmic decision making or assisted decision making in in public in the public sector 
And here again, in a uh, lot of the dilemmas that are um, uh, evolving throughout that uh, interface between algorithms and decision making cannot be solved alone with reference to scientists and, and policymakers. This needs to be opened up much more radically to also include um, civil society, uh, vulnerable groups, uh, stakeholder groups, both organized and also unorganized. And also, as will become one of our major uh, one of our major priorities, it also has to be opened up to the next generation. So that is, um, uh, children and young people needs to be involved. So we want to have a new alliance of public scientific outreach, together with public schools and secondary schools and and gymnasiums, in order for also the younger generation to work on some of these dilemmas that are evolving when you're starting to introduce algorithmically assisted uh, decision-making in public government. So here I believe that the conversation or, or as it were, the co-creation um, uh, between policymakers and scientists, yes that, yes, that is part of the picture and it's the first step, but that co-creation then needs to be opened up also to source in um, much more input from stakeholder groups, uh, civil society, uh, from industry, of course, uh, and also from the media and from ordinary, let's say, lay citizens, which often are much better at formulating dilemmas and trade-offs than we are as scientists and policymakers. Oh, that sounds cool. Ambitious in a good way. I'm happy you think so. <laughs> okay, one final question. So circling back to where we started after, I guess that was a digression into science advice design. Tell me, when you have a good science advice mechanism, how do you measure and demonstrate its impact? Asking for a friend. <laughs> of course, no, again, uh, methodologically, this is a quite complex question that would take some, uh, some uh, time and effort to answer, Toby. But I think well, we're short on time, but maybe gesture at some broad principles. Yes, I think what you should do is you should um, start out by understanding what are the contributions of research to policymaking. So rather than being obsessed with final decisions and the outcomes of those final decisions on affected populations, on cost efficiency, then first what you should try to do is to establish some indicators that could put more credibility to your contributions. So how many interactions do you have with policymakers? Are you invited to provide expertise or input on a recurrent basis? Can you get the policymakers to testify that they are uh, perceiving you as an important resource for policymaking? So perhaps coming up with one or two testimonials. Uh, do you have other... Um, uh, sources of data available. So, for example, what we have been looking at, are you referenced or cited in a policy report? There might be both direct mentions and indirect mentions. Those might be uh, mentions in uh, green papers or in white papers where you will be able to see that uh, your research has been mentioned by the policymakers. But it may also be uh, more broadly that uh, the research area in which you work have played a role in, uh, in formulating a new challenge to government or a new policy problem, then it's up to you to demonstrate what was your contribution as a research unit or a national academy to establish that agenda. How many conferences, seminars, what was the participants of those conferences and seminars? Were there practitioners among them? Did you remember to also include and invite uh, government officials um, the number of policy briefings, policy papers, uh, press releases. All this, of course, again goes back to a very tricky methodological question, namely that outputs are not the same as impacts. So you can go ahead and, and count all your outputs and, and come up with a very nice narrative about all the efforts you did. But how did that then translate into, into some type of change in society? And that you then have to substantiate. But you have to substantiate it driven by the data not independent of that data. So you have to start by first understanding uh, what were your interactions, what were your contributions, how did the agenda become established, and, and uh, how did problems become to be defined, and what were your role in contributing to that. Then I think you have a much more sound and reliable basis on top of which you can then write up your narrative or your impact case study.
Uh, so look at all your interactions. Look at all the you know the the entanglements of 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 your research to policymaking as sort of being uh, testimonials of micro impacts. You know of a lot of different small sources of impacts that are slowly flowing into the formation of a policy agenda, and then try to formulate that in a concise and data driven way. That would often be a, a one way of, of working with a theory of change that could put up some credibility to your impact. Excellent. I will take that message back to my colleagues. Thank you very much. Please do. And thanks indeed for taking part in this whole conversation. It's been very enlightening. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by Sapea. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learned societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.